Well, uh, I mentioned earlier in the service that this is a new year and therefore a new beginning for us, for a lot of our programming, and that, that goes for our sermon series as well as for the other things we've already talked about this morning. Uh, we are about to start a series in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter, second letter that we have still on hand to this group of Christians in Corinth, and I love new sermon series introductions. You guys are going to see me geek out this morning. I love, it feels like syllabus day. I say that every time. I loved syllabus day as a student. I was a student a long time. I went through a lot of syllabus days. It was always my favorite. I love to see the, the big picture and imagine where we're going and what we're going to get out of it. And that's what we're going to do together this morning. Uh, but before we get there, before we get to syllabus day, if you, ha- if you will, and for 2 Corinthians, uh, it's also, New Year is also a time when a lot of us sort of recommit ourselves to engaging the Bible well. A lot of us are looking for new tools for daily Bible reading, for a way to, to help us understand what we're reading and, and get more out of it. And I wanted to capitalize on that, assuming you guys have that interest, and give you a couple recommendations. Um, there are many, many more that I could give, and, and the, the bottom line is just get in the Bible and, and read it, and you won't be sorry. And if you do it with friends, you especially won't be sorry, and, and God has promised he'll help you. Uh, but if you are looking for a tool, I, wanna, I just want to point you to two that are going to be on the resource table back there. One that I've used before and one that I'm just starting to use this year. Uh, The one that I've used before and really like is called Through the Bible Through the Year. It's by John Stott, who is is now no longer living, but was a faithful Anglican pastor in London for something like 50 years. He pastored for a long time and wrote some really helpful uh, books. This one is called Daily Reflections from Genesis to Revelation, and it's not your typical through the Bible reading plan. It's not one that tries to get you through every verse in the Bible for the year. It's actually broken down according to the liturgical year that the Anglican church has followed for like 500 years. That was his tradition. That's where he practiced ministry. And so he's written the book following that structure. So it gets you through the main parts of the Bible, but not through every verse in the Bible. And it follows uh, the, the way that they structure their year is to help you see the main pieces to the story that the Bible tells from beginning to end. Um, there, it's really helpfully laid out with readings for each day and then a little, you know, uh, half-page comment by him about what you've read for that day. So if maybe your, your experience so far in Bible reading plans has been to try to read the whole Bible all at once and you're looking for a, a slightly different approach, I think this is really insightful and helpful uh, if you don't have any background in, in that way of thinking about the Bible. And he is such a faithful guide. You will not be sorry. So this one's through the Bible through the year. And here's the other one. This one is called Psalms by the Day. It's also broken down with daily Bible readings, as you can tell, based on that subtitle. Uh, but it is new, newly translated by one of my favorite writers about the Bible. He's also just recently died, also I believe an Anglican guy, uh, who, who pastored and, and taught in the UK for his career. A guy named Alec Motier. Really helpful Bible study resources all across the board from him. But this one was one of his last projects before he died. He's translated all the Psalms. He's added some helpful notes to help you understand what some of the words mean. Uh, some, of the, some of the references that'll be in the Psalms that just don't make sense to us because they were part of the culture that Israel was living in at the time. He's got notes to help you understand that. And then he's got a little comment, like a half-page comment after each Psalm. Uh, so if you're looking for a chance to go into the Psalms, this one's a great guide. It'll be on the, worship, or on the resource table back in the back. And last but not least, this is not the last time I'll do this, but I want to point you to a couple of things that will help you with the 2 Corinthians series if you're looking for a way to study more on your own 
in parallel with the sermons as we're going through it. This is one of a couple of resources I'll be telling you about in the next two or three weeks. This one's a, a commentary on 2 Corinthians, but it's a commentary in a really great series that's always pitched at people who don't do this for a living, right? It's pitched for folks who are, who are looking just for a, a high-level extra help with understanding some of the things that they're reading as they read. Uh, so really concise and to the point, but very careful and pastorally useful and, and winsome. Uh, this is Second Corinthians by Colin Cruz. It'll also be back there. That's the end of my commercial for this morning. Now with what time we've got left, I want to, uh, I want to unpack, or actually not unpack, I want to point ahead to Second Corinthians and to how we're going to engage this letter together over the next few months. There's a lot of different ways to do an overview of a book of the Bible, um, a lot of different ways to enter into a new sermon series. I want to enter into this one with a question that we'll answer in the time that we've got left. I simply want to ask, why do we need this letter? It's an ancient letter. It was written to people who were living in a very different time from us, in a different place, with somewhat different needs and concerns. So why do we, in the 21st century, still need this letter? Another way of, another way of framing that same question is, why has God saved it for us? We trust that His providence, His goodness and grace is behind the fact that we still can read the Bible. That it's been protected for thousands of years when other books have not been. Why did God save this letter for his people to read? That's the question I want to answer this morning. And I want to do that in three steps. The first thing I want to do is read the first two verses where Paul introduces his letter to the Corinthians. I'm going to read those two verses. And then I I want to walk through three answers to that question. Would you stand with me now in honor of God's word as I read? From 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. In those two verses, you've seen who wrote the letter and who he wrote the letter to. It's written by Paul. It was written to his friends in the ancient Roman city of Corinth. But the real question is, why do we need this letter today? Assuming it has more than just general historical value, it's more than just a way of looking at like a window into an ancient time, an ancient place. Why do we need it? Here's the first answer to that question. We need this letter. We need 2 Corinthians because Paul wrote it to help us connect truth about Jesus to the details of our lives. The reason Paul wrote this letter was to help the Corinthians and and ultimately in God's providence to help us connect the truth about Jesus to the details of our lives. Paul wrote a lot of letters like this one. If you don't know much about the Bible, this is one of, of a bunch of them. And most of the New Testament is made up of his letters written to different churches that he helped to found. And he wrote these letters because he had to do a lot of pastoring people from a distance. Paul was one of the first to take the gospel, the news about Jesus, into different parts of the Roman world that Jesus never had a chance to visit himself. So because so few people knew about Jesus and because, because the urgency was so strong... Paul spent his life going from place to place to place to place. And that was great for the spread of the news about Jesus, but it made things hard 
for developing churches and developing people who would really deeply understand Jesus and what it means to live for Jesus. He didn't have long with them. He couldn't pastor the same people for a whole career and grow up together and, and do all the benchmarks in life together like we get to do now. So he had to do a lot of pastoring from a distance as he moved on from town to town to town. And that's what he's doing in 2 Corinthians. He's writing a follow-up letter. It's actually one of several letters that he wrote to guide his friends into what it means to be Christian. His friends in Corinth needed a lot of help. I don't want to bash on them too bad because we need a lot of help too. And we're going to talk about that later this morning. But this was a church that really struggled to connect with the, the meaning of what Jesus had done for them. Paul's work in Corinth was always vulnerable. It was vulnerable to a lot of false teachers and the things they would come in behind Paul and say, that things that weren't true. It was vulnerable to the people in Corinth that had become Christians, to, to their ongoing love for their old life, for the, the ways of the pagan past that all of them had grown up with and that pretty much all of their current friends were practicing. It was vulnerable. And Paul couldn't be there, so he wrote to them. Now, in some letters that Paul wrote, letters like Romans or Galatians, he's writing to correct some bad theology, some, some ideas that had spread among the people that, that he had left behind that he knew were not true and that could keep them from connecting with Jesus. That's not the way 2 Corinthians reads. In other letters, like Ephesians or Colossians, it seems like he was writing to a, a broad audience. Like those letters were sent around from city to city. And there's all these ancient copies of them that don't even have an, uh, an address to line. It's like a blank there where you can just fill it in to the you know, Corinthians or to the Ephesians. They were general letters, basic introductions to what it means to be Christian. This one's not like that. 2 Corinthians actually doesn't say a whole lot about who Jesus was or what he did. There doesn't seem to be much of a controversy there about that. Not a heresy to confront. This one instead is a deeply personal letter. Written to friends for whom Paul was afraid. And he was afraid for them. Not because of the ideas in their heads, but because of the huge gap between the ideas in their heads, the things they claim to believe, and their vision for what they wanted from life. He wrote to people who had a huge gap between the things that they had in their head about Jesus that were true and the vision for life that they were pursuing. So in other words, he assumes that they get the basics of the gospel message. That message, friends, is that we made for God's glory and not to live for ourselves, have chosen to live for ourselves anyway. That every day we've ever lived, we've chosen our ways above God's ways. That we have made ourselves his enemies by choice, not because anyone made us. And that in spite of our making ourselves God's enemies, he's chosen to make peace with us. He's chosen to make peace with us at the cost of the thing in the world most precious to him, his own son, who became one of us, who lived a perfect life, who died the death that we were meant to die, and who lives again so that he can offer hope and peace and life to anyone who looks to him. That's the gospel message. That's the message that the Corinthians believed. So Paul doesn't rehash it much. Paul's writing instead to say something like, Given what you believe about Jesus, what I taught you, what you still claim to hold, here's how you should think about life. Here's what you should expect from life. 
here's what you should be seeking after in your life. So he writes to them in this letter about suffering, about weakness, about sin in the community and how to deal with it, about what to do with their money, about what sort of leaders they should follow. This is a letter that helps us connect true things about Jesus with the choices that we're making, with the situations that we're facing in our everyday lives. So why do we need this letter? Because we're not very good at doing that on our own. At least I'm not. Surely I'm not the only one in the room today who feels like it's often really hard to see the things we're dealing with in our lives in light of the things we claim to believe about Jesus. Sometimes it's about busyness. Sometimes it's about apathy or about our distraction. One of the things we've said before, and I can't claim credit for this. I didn't come up with this image, but I think it's so helpful, is, is that more, maybe, maybe even more often than not, the truth about Jesus is a kind of crackly AM audio going on in the background of our lives while other things, things we want to get out of life, things we're afraid we might not get out of life, other things, the cares of this world, are in sparkling high-definition video. And when Jesus is in this crackling background audio and the cares of this world are in this sparkling high-definition video, the video feed is going to win out for our attention every time. Here's another image for the same problem. Sometimes I think we think about Jesus like a life insurance policy. Nice to have, right? Maybe give us some peace of mind. Everybody wants to have one. But in general, you file them and you forget about them. You keep paying your minimal dues. You go through the motions. But your life insurance policy is not a major factor in your life. We think about Jesus more like a life insurance policy than we think about him as a checking account. And my checking account, that's a daily presence in my life. I rely on it regularly. It has a huge effect on my decision making. I'll try this one. Belief in Jesus and who he is and what he did and what he offers me and what he asks of me. These are the kinds of beliefs that should be self-involving. They're the kinds of things that if you believe them, it changes how you behave. So they should be a lot more like my belief this morning based on the testimony of my iPhone that it was 10 degrees outside. That was a life-involving belief that affected this nice sweater that I'm wearing and these nice wool pants and the jacket that I wore to get here. That was a self-involving belief. Now, my belief that the, that the state bird of my home state of Alabama is what's known as the northern flicker, otherwise known as the yellow hammer, form of woodpecker. That belief is not a self-involving belief. It's in my head, but there's no translation into my life. It doesn't really affect how I'm going to behave towards my children when I get home this afternoon. It doesn't affect how I'm loving my wife or trying to reach out to my neighbors. One of these beliefs is self-involving. The other one isn't. All of us, if you're a Christian this morning and you claim to believe in Jesus, what you're claiming is a belief that should be fundamentally altering every level of your engagement with the world. But it doesn't. Not for any of us. And Paul wrote this letter to help us with that problem. To model for us how to make the connection between what Jesus has done and what we're doing. That's the first reason we need this letter. We need help with that problem. Here's a second reason. Why do we need 2 Corinthians? Well, actually we need it because Paul wrote this letter to people who are a lot like us. A lot of the Bible 
was written to people or about people that were really, really different from us. And in some ways, that's true about the Corinthians too. But you got to do a lot of work to bridge the gap between, say, what Israel was facing in the time of the Judges, which is a series that we, we went through together in the fall, and, and our own day and what we're facing. There's a special kind of translation work that you have to do to make that jump. We don't have to jump nearly as far, though, to connect with the world of the Corinthians, with the way they were seeing things, with the things they wanted out of their lives and the things that we want out of our lives. Paul was writing to a people in a culture that has some really important similarities to ours. Here's, here's what you need to know by way of background about culture. This is a classic introduction to a new sermon series, Syllabus Day Moment. Some of you will appreciate it. You're welcome. Here's what you need to know about Corinth. In Paul's day, this city was really wealthy, but it was newly wealthy. It wasn't based on a kind of aristocracy like we sometimes assume of those ancient times. And you know, a, lot of, a lot of times, a lot of the ancient times, a lot of places in the ancient world, kind of what you had in life, the kind of structure of your life, how much money you had, what kind of job you did, all that was settled for you before you were ever born. You were born into a family of blacksmiths. That's what you did. That's why there's so many smiths in the world. Or you were born into a family of aristocrats, maybe bureaucrats in the Roman Empire or nobles in the UK or something like that. You were born into what you were going to be. You didn't have a lot of choices in the matter. There wasn't a lot of mobility. That wasn't true of Corinth. See, this was a really important city on a really important trade route between Asia and all the countries around the Mediterranean Sea. It sat right in between them, this access point. A lot of money coming through. But the city was completely destroyed by war about 100 years before Paul wrote this letter. About 100 years before Paul wrote this letter, the Roman Empire decided to rebuild this city. It's in such an important place. They needed to have a city there. There's a lot of money, a lot of economic opportunity that could come from this place. So they rebuilt it on top of the ruins. But it was brand new. And to get... To get, to get it populated, they filled it with freed people who were formerly slaves. They filled it with vets who had been fighting in the Roman Empire's wars all over that part of the world and had come home and they didn't want them on the mainland and in Italy uh, taking their opportunities away. So they, they shipped them over here to Corinth. It was, it was a place where people facing a new chapter in their lives had a chance to see what they could make of their lives. It was a place where you could make your mark. You could climb a a ladder. And in this fluid and wealth-driven and materialistic world, status and power were up for grabs. And everybody wanted them. Here's how one commentator, one historian, summarizes what Corinth was like. This is what Corinth was like during this time. It seems, he he wrote, it seems to have been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. The value which others place on one's goods and achievements. Let me read that one more time, and I want you to tell me if that doesn't sound familiar. Corinth in the first century, brand new city, full of new money, lots of ladder climbing, seems to have been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status with the value with which other, that others place on one's goods and achievements. It was a city full of people who were posturing themselves for others. People who were 
fixated on building an image. People obsessed with money and sex and knowledge and honor and powerful connections and the protection of their rights against those who might challenge them. Plenty of examples, even in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, to back this up. There he had to correct them because they were lining up behind different Christian teachers. I'm with Paul, they said, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Peter. Lining up behind a Christian teacher like you line up behind a brand of the shirt that you're wearing this morning, or I'm with Brooks Brothers, or I'm with Banana Republic, or I'm with whoever, fill fill in the blank. Choose your own adventure. Paul wrote to them because rich people were trying to establish their supremacy over poor people even in their celebration of communion. What we did this morning, we talked about how one of the main purposes here is leveling us all at the foot of the cross. All of us are joined together in the fact that we're sinful and have no hope on our own and that we're all recipients of grace we don't deserve that fully covers for our sins. That's what communion is about. It's about leveling all of us under what Jesus has done. And they were using even that meal as a chance to show their superiority over one another, as a status-establishing opportunity. The rich people were bringing lots of food that they were eating only for themselves and not sharing with the poor people so that it made it more clear who had money and who didn't. Paul had to correct that. Anyway, first, first century Corinth was a lot like 21st century America. You think you're not status-obsessed? You don't find yourself comparing to other people? Your spirit rising or falling based on how you measure up? You don't compare your body or your fashion sense or your career success or your bank account size to that of your friends or to whoever happens to walk in the door even on a Sunday morning? See, the status obsessed always prefer what is seen over what is unseen. It's more than me just expressing myself through fashion or through home decorating or the car that I'm driving or what I'm reading or or whatever. It's not just me expressing myself. This is always for the status obsessed. It's me presenting myself for your approval. And maybe at least a little bit, it's me presenting myself for your envy. See, competition is always underneath this drive for status. And in a competitive environment, it is crucial to show that I'm winning at life. So long as we're obsessed with winning at life, so long as we're using every means at our disposal. Can you imagine what the Corinthians would have done with Instagram? So long as we're using every means at our disposal to project an image of our own awesomeness, we're never going to be impressed by Jesus. And we won't be able to experience and rest in His power. And that's what's behind Paul's urgency in this letter. We need this letter because Paul wrote to help people connect what they claim to believe about Jesus with what they were actually facing in their lives. 
We need it because Paul wrote to a people that actually are a lot like us. And the gap between what they believe about Jesus and what they were doing with their lives is really similar to the gap that, that all of us struggle with. Because they're obsessed with their own status while claiming to follow the man of sorrows. And Paul wrote this letter, thirdly, the third reason that we need it. Paul wrote this letter so that we could recognize the mark of authentic Christianity. And that is not our strength, friends. It is God's strength and our weakness. Now, there are other themes throughout this letter that we're going to follow here and there, a couple of rabbit trails that Paul jumps on. He wrote it like you and I might write an email. I mean, it's not stream of consciousness. It's not that loose, but it jumps around a lot because he's just writing to his friends about what he's heard, about what they're dealing with. And we're going to follow the rabbit trails wherever they take us. But, but mostly, mostly the letter is Paul's defense of himself and his own ministry and his own definition of Christianity against people who were claiming he's a fraud. Because since he had left Corinth, other teachers had come in behind them and told them exactly what they want to hear. Christianity can be part of how you make your mark. Christianity can be part of how you build your resume, of how you construct for yourself a life that other people will envy. Follow me. I'll lead you there. These people claimed that Paul was a fraud because Paul was too weak. Because in some ways, Paul's life was a mess. And honestly, they weren't wrong. Based on some of the things that Paul says in the letter, we can piece together this theme that the false teachers must have been saying against him. Basically saying, if you want to live to win at life, if you want to line up behind somebody that fits the profile that you're going for, you want to follow me and not Paul. You want, you want someone who suits your tastes, who makes a good statement about who you are, can maybe help you get where you want to go. And nothing about the way Paul speaks is going to help you as project this image of somebody who's got great discriminating tastes in what they read or what they consume. Paul refused to take money from them. He justifies that decision in this letter. Instead, working this menial job as a tent maker... So the false teachers were pointing that out. Do you really want to follow this guy who's got to make ends meet by making tents? He's not going to help you make your mark or build up your personal wealth. And then, more than anything, this comes out in chapter 11, there's Paul's pattern of life. It's hard. It's full of trouble and suffering and rejection. Most of the people that he spent time with didn't like him, rejected his message, and even tried to kill him. He got more rejection than he got acceptance. He was persecuted more often than he was praised. His life was a mess. Is this what you want for your life? Is this, if this is where his version of Christianity gets you, do you really want it? And you know what, friends? What are you going to see through this letter? Paul doesn't back down. He doesn't try to prettify it. He is brutally honest about what his life looks like. Here's an example. This is from chapter 11. I'm going to pick up in verse 23. He refers to far more imprisonments. Verse 23. Countless beatings to living often near death. Five times, he says, 
I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. It's kind of like a Johnny Cash song, doesn't it? (laughs) Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, from all of these external pressures... There was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He loved his friends so much that he carried their burdens like they were his. Who is weak and I am not weak, Paul says. If you're weak, that makes me weak. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Your problems are mine. That's the life Paul was living. There is no photo filter that can change the ugliness of what this man lived through. Can you imagine that life playing out on Instagram? Who would envy it? Who would admire it in that day, in that city? So, these teachers were telling the Corinthians, Christianity shows up in power. That's where the genuine stuff shows up. That's what authentic Christianity looks like. It's power in lives that other people envy. It shows up in wealth and honor and influence. Christianity is for winners, they were telling them. And Paul, Paul's a loser. He's a fraud. There's no future in a life like this. This won't help you pad your resume. It won't help you get invited to the it parties. I said before, Paul's response, his defense of himself, which comes out in the first chapters, but especially near the end of the letter, it's incredibly honest all the way through. He doesn't try to change this image of himself at all. He owns it every step of the way. In fact, he says... I'm not a peddler of God's word. I've got nothing to sell you. I'm not going to try to clean this up and make it look good for you. But as men of sincerity, he says in chapter 2, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I am a man under authority. I just, I'm a conduit for what Jesus has done and what God has said. That's all I offer you. I'm not a peddler. In fact, in chapter 4, he says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word to make it sound better for your ears. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I'm a conduit. Judge me based on what I say, what God has said. In other words, he's telling him, I'm not playing your game. I'm not going to try to impress you. I'm not going to offer you any incentive for following my lead. I am not the point. I offer you Jesus and nothing more. For Paul, all the hardship in his life, all of the, all of the, all the things that happened to him, all the rejection and the persecution and the danger, his visible weakness was not a sign that his faith wasn't genuine, but the primary sign that his version of Christianity is genuine. What Paul's going to argue, what we're going to unpack together in the weeks to come, that authentic Christianity shows up in our weakness because that is a reality that matches the message we're claiming to believe. Think about this. When we talk about something, someone as a poser, when we talk about someone as, as a hypocrite, 
We're talking about someone whose, whose life or means don't match up with their message. Where, where they're a conduit for something different from what's actually true about them. Do you imagine someone like, stumping for mercy for animals, but eating a nice ribeye for dinner and charging it to the company card? That would be someone who's claiming to represent one message while living in light of a very, very different message. Paul's basically saying the same is true for Christianity. You say to me that, that all of my afflictions, my suffering, my rejections, my weakness and frailty define who I am? I say, guilty as charged. Even more, I say, thanks for the compliment. Because this is what was said of my master. We read it earlier from Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. And I think of the Corinthians hearing that. Think of yourself hearing these words about the Jesus that you claim to believe in. No beauty that we should desire him. No one envied his life. He was despised and rejected, not celebrated, not affirmed. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was somebody men would hide their faces from, not gaze at over their screen with envy. So friends, what Paul is saying to his friends and to us is that you cannot be obsessed with your own status, with a life that's visibly awesome, envied by others, and claim to have love for the one who was rejected by his own people, who had nowhere to lay his head, and who willingly endured the shame of the cross for the glory that was set before him. Paul warns us against privileging the things that are seen over the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are where we try to make our mark, but they're transient, they are a vapor. They are deceptive and unreliable. The things that are unseen are eternal. Genuine Christianity is a Christianity that embraces our weakness. doesn't try to hide it. Because we know, in genuine Christianity, you know that our weakness is part of the point. As Paul puts it in chapter 12, he, referring here to God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In authentic Christianity, weakness is part of the point. Weakness is how we get to Jesus. It's how God proves to us and to anyone who's looking at us that he really does have a power that we don't have. Why do we need this letter? Because we are going to experience hard things this year. Maybe not the same ones that Paul did, but we will. We'll be disappointed. We will fail. We We will be frustrated. Our lives might be a mess. In one way or another, they will be. And if you think that authentic Christianity is for the put together then you're going to keep your mess quiet and you'll struggle on your own. If it gets out, your mess, 
your shame, your failure, your disappointment, if it gets out, you're going to struggle bad with shame. And either way, your mind and your heart will probably be poisoned by comparison to the lives that other people are living. That's what will happen if you think Christianity is for the put together. But if you recognize that authentic Christianity is always rooted in accepting our weakness as the path to God's strength, then the challenges that you face this year are going to turn into opportunities. Opportunities for deeper faith. For learning, again, how God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Opportunities for bringing glory to the God who raises the dead. Life and death rest on which version of Christianity is authentic. And we need this letter because in it, Paul points us to the genuine article. Father, we know that even with a word as clear as you've given us in this letter, we are going to struggle to embrace it, to understand it, but even more than to understand it, to embrace it and to accept your redefinition of what weakness means for us. So right now, at the beginning of this journey together through this ancient letter, I just pray that you would bless us. And despite our rejection so often of what you've said, you would help us again, come back to us. Help us again to understand and love what you've said. Help us to be a community in which we don't have to be afraid to be honest about our weaknesses because all of us are trusting in the same source of strength. Protect us from the disunity that always comes when we're comparing ourselves from one another. When we're trying to establish our status over against somebody else's. Everything in us craves that contest. Everything in us wants to win. We want to embrace a life in which we are losers here. In the eyes of those who see only what is seen. So that we might be Sharers in Jesus' victory. The unseen victory that will one day be revealed. Hold us until that day. Give us hearts that long for that day. Through our time in this letter, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.